Welcome back to All the Water in the World and None of It to Drink. We ended our last episode talking about what it will take for the Water Department to restore the broken trust of the community and how that fits in with the implementation of the Lifeline Plan. But what does justice look like to people who have been directly impacted by shutoffs? And for those of us who live outside the city and benefit from the structures we talked about in episode one that set the stage for this crisis, what does it look like to ally ourselves with the community and where can we be useful? It's a cold, gray January day. I'm sitting with Miss Daniqua, the housing justice advocate, mother of five, and lifelong resident who we spoke with in episode one, in a one-room library in southwest Detroit. You got a blank slate. What do you wish water in your community looked like? I wish water in my community was safe and fresh to drink, without fear of getting sick. And okay, if we gotta pay for water, let it actually be affordable. Don't lie about it. Don't base it on another county or the fact that you don't want to do your job, things like that. It's, it's possible to pay a fee for your water. It's possible, but let me pay for the water that I can actually use. I don't have to boil the water. I don't have to go get filters because the water is clean, fresh, and delicious and healthy. That's what it would look like for me. As I asked folks across the city this question, the answers sounded remarkably similar. Here's Larry. I would think that it would be pure. It would be clean. It would be what the creator created to be. It would be refreshing. You know, it would be that with that cool sip on that warm day. And then it would be what was needed on other days. Like, and it wouldn't cost people. They wouldn't be having to go move <laughs> out into the street because they, they can't afford to have water. For Miss Valerie, her dream water future was deeply connected to other human rights. I can't say dream water future without adding housing, healthcare, food. We want it all. We want access to affordable water and never, ever, ever, ever should water shutoffs be a solution to people not paying their bills. We want access to safe local food. We want access to health care for everyone. These things are just the basics. We want access to housing, of course. We want it all. We deserve it. Here's Day, who experienced a shutoff that lasted months when she was just 12. If you were going to go back to your 12-year-old self, the one who was like having to deal with that shutoff and like brush your teeth at school and everything, what do you feel like justice for that 12-year-old girl would look like? It would look like me never having to brush my teeth at school or bathe at other people's houses. What do you feel like justice for this community when it comes to water would look like? Lowering the bills, for one. Lowering the bills and being held accountable when things go wrong and it's their fault. Like I said, they didn't take any accountability for the sewer, none at all. I don't understand it. For many people who've directly experienced shutoffs, the message to me was clear. Provide us water we can trust, water that won't break our bank account, water that won't disappear when we fall on hard times, and take accountability for the times where that hasn't been the case, where the actions of the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department have caused harm. When I asked people what was holding them back from that future, most people pointed to local causes and tensions first. For example, here's what Ms. Daniqua had to say. 
what in the present is keeping that from being the reality? The lies, the misconceptions, the people that are not doing the jobs that they are paid to do, not stepping up for the community at all, mm -hmm. and doing a little bit, doing just enough to keep the community quiet or having people on their side. And that's for some, it's not for many, and it's definitely not for all. A lot of people don't know any of this stuff, especially if you're a renter. You don't always know this stuff, yeah. but the owners usually do. They don't share that with the renters. They just pass the money on to them. And then I, I, they crack me up when they come to the community and ask for certain things they know we have no clue about. Like what? How many people in the community know about the pipes? How many people in the community know how old the stuff is? Yeah. How many of them know how to repair it? Not many. And then they're not educating the newer population to be able to do the job. For Mama Monica, Asking about a dream water future was a reminder of the ownership and pride the community had had in the department and of the opportunities that it could still create today. What do you think water can look like in Detroit for your grandkids? Oh my God. I mean, my dream for my grandkids in Detroit, I have two, I have a grandson and a granddaughter. For Detroit would be that water would be clean, safe, affordable and accessible that the youth and returning citizens and members of the community would have the opportunity to take advantage of the jobs, contracts, and training from that investment, that Detroit would regain full ownership and control over its own asset, that we would return to being leaders in the water sector and water space again. We took a lot of pride. Up until 1997, we had a a water department that provided some of the cleanest and best water in the world. I mean, not in North America, not in Michigan, in the world. And we'd like to return to that status. And that was under black leadership, reminding people of that. So much of that loss, of representation, of pride, of ownership, and most importantly, of affordability, has to do with the political power exerted by the suburbs. In episode one, we talked about the way that Detroit's loss of the regional water system it built to suburban control was a direct result of years of political maneuvering by the suburbs, combined with the loss of democratic representation from emergency management. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about how this and other systemic factors pitted the local government against its constituents. For people in the local government, though, there isn't always a recognition of these bigger systemic factors or even the history of their own entity's actions. For Victoria, the water policy analyst with We the People of Detroit, there's a tension both at the state level and local level because the people in positions of power today weren't necessarily there when those policies started, and so they don't always recognize the past harm of their institution. The Board of Water Commissioners now, they don't really understand the history of, you know, why people come, why the public comes to them with such tension or frustration, yeah. and they feel attacked. But even if, right, the mass shutoffs, all these, you know, related issues happen before their tenure, they still have a responsibility. That is their, that is part of the responsibility that they took on as a Board of Water Commissioners, even if they were not the ones who signed off for shutoffs. For example, so I think it's it's not only what happened in the past. I think it's also a matter of who holds the responsibility now to acknowledge, to 
to remediate and redress the situation that has been built over decades of, you know, all related policy redlining. Infrastructure investments have declined severely, of course, until the the, the bill since the the seventies and or eighties. Um, I mean, at, at the at the state level and the and the local level, it's really just, I mean, the folks who were in charge and continue are purely interested in cutting costs or, you know, the effects of austerity policy still felt today. And for Mama Monica, the actions of the Water Department can feel actively resistant to systemic change at higher levels. But I find it very difficult to believe that Detroit is ever going to move beyond the, the stalemate of water insecurity as long as Mr. Brown does not believe that we should renegotiate the Gleewa Agreement. Mm -hmm. He does not believe we should. He thinks we've gotten the best deal we can get. But despite their role in creating the disinvestment that led to these water crises, the suburbs are rarely seen as part of the problem or as a part of the solution. I'm curious what you feel like the broader systemic responsibility on the part of suburbs, on the part of like the federal government, on the part of the state government is to the city of Detroit in the context of water and also what you think that could look like in the present. It's a tough question because, you know, where, first of all, you have to acknowledge to folks that, that you know, a lot of a lot of this is, is not just about devaluing black assets. Yeah. It's about devaluing black lives, right? And, and lives of color. And and how do you how do you repair from that you know if, if this is not racial capitalism right i mean this is what racial capitalism is it's devaluing the lives of people of color and then going after them for that right right through through colorblind assaults so where do you come how do you come out of that this is michael mascarenas the academic writing a book on the detroit shutoff crisis who we've spoken with earlier in the series he started his career working on indigenous water rights in Canada, and he had some really interesting comparisons to draw between what it means to address historical harm in these two different communities. I think, you know, with indigenous communities, it's, I mean, with recognized indigenous communities, it's, it's almost easier in that you're talking about sovereignty and you're talking about groups controlling land and rights to, you know, to, to themselves, their community, resources so there's almost a sovereignty to sovereignty nation to nation discussion with which you can start to think about well let's think about you know that have harmed you and how to how to amend those but for communities of color you know i think that aren't that aren't bound by by nation to nation treaties it's much more difficult in terms of thinking about reparations without having it go down the welfare route road we show in very definitive forms how this has been about investing in, in, in whiteness and, 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 and then how do you disinvest or you know, how do you think about rebuilding some of these communities? In other words, disinvesting from Detroit and core cities across the state meant investing in the suburbs. And for those of us in the suburbs, what that means is that reinvestment takes our engagement and allyship, both in terms of rebalancing local structures and recognizing and using our disproportionate political power at the state level to advocate for bigger change. No reinvestment can really happen without suburban engagement. So for Detroit's water infrastructure, what can reinvestment look like? 
On a basic level, reinvestment in this case is about creating the structures to equitably fund infrastructure in cities that have been hit the hardest. In the first episode, we talked about the systemic roots of the water affordability crisis in Detroit. And in fairness to everyone involved, most of those roots are deeply tied to the history of our country and don't exactly have easy solutions. It's not simple to reinvest after decades of housing disinvestment and segregation, but it's important to remember that history when we talk about the local structures that have been built in the aftermath. One of those structures is the Great Lakes Water Authority. You don't even have to go back 40, 50, 100 years to calculate what would bring about systemic change if we just looked at an equitable rate structure for the Bleedwood deal. That was Mama Monica. And in episode one, her and several other advocates spoke about how the Great Lakes Water Authority, or GLIWA, was designed to take suburban ownership of the Detroit regional water system and the ways that it has both diverted money away from the city's water infrastructure, codified inequitable financial arrangements, and removed yet another long-term revenue source from the city. Right now you've got the Haas report that shows that GLIWA should be paying the residents of Detroit, somewhere in the ballpark of about $215 million annually for leasing our water infrastructure system. And we're only getting a little bit more than $33 million. And so that, to me, would be a place where reparations could show up. Mm-hmm. It's an equitable agreement, a fair one. One more similar to what Camden did, where we have a, a host agreement that really honors the fact that we built the system, that we have the legacy debt for the system, and then making sure that over a course of time that debt will be dissolved. As a reminder, GLIWA was created during emergency management. And so this bargain rate that they're able to lease Detroit's water infrastructure at is a direct product of Detroit losing its representation due to suburban influence. But what would it look like to restructure this arrangement today in a way that's more equitable and fair to the city and that allows Detroit to better meet its water needs? Mama Monica mentioned Camden as a more equitable example. So I spoke with the former head of Camden, New Jersey's water department, Andy Cricken, to better understand what it looks like to restructure a regional system to get the core city the resources it needs. Hey, Andy. Hey, Evan. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. Andy ran Camden's regional utility for over a decade. Camden, much like Detroit, is a majority black, lower income city surrounded by affluent suburbs. And when Andy told me about what Camden's utility was like when he got there, it sounded like the suburbs were solidly the ones in power. I started in Camden right out of college, and the utility I worked for was completely indifferent to the, I mean, not just indifferent, like contemptuous of them. A regional system like the Great Lakes Water Authority. Yes, it was a regional authority that services 36 suburbs plus the city of Camden. The board that governed my utility was all from the suburbs, none from the city. And even though Camden is 85% people of color, there was only one person of color on the board. Wow. That person was a suburban person. So, like, nobody was representing the city. Look, I live in the suburbs. We had an 80 million gallon per day wastewater treatment plant, which is pretty large, generating 200 tons, 40,000 pounds of sludge every day. It was 100 yards away from a residential neighborhood and an elementary school, and they had no odor control and no interest in putting in an AOR control. And it was because the people that worked there were from the suburbs. They didn't live in the city. They didn't care. It was just not, it was just not their problem. As Andy continued to rise through the utility, he started to push it to do more for the city whose needs it had historically neglected for the suburbs. 
He pushed the Camden utility to create something that activists in Detroit have pushed for since the start of GLIWA, a host community benefit, which recognizes the additional burden that the city has from hosting the treatment plant and the fact that it has the legacy debt from when the system was built in the first place. In Camden, here's what it looked like. We put in a host community benefit, and I'm so proud of this. And the rationale was now, ideally, it, it, to me, the reason to do it is because it's not fair. All the sewage from the entire county is coming into the city. Why shouldn't the city get some kind of a break for it? But that's a moral or ethical argument that has no legal basis. Sure. So, I, so even though that was my real reason, the reason that I said we would is because the reason I stated was that think of it this way: the sewage is being generated in the suburbs, and there are these big pipes, you know, pumping the flow from the suburbs into the city sewage treatment, into the regional sewage treatment plant, like the case in Detroit too, and then it's treated there. Well, there's 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 a capital cost to build those pumping stations and pipelines. There's debt service associated with that, and then there's also ongoing operations and maintenance of that. Why should the city of Camden, the host city, pay for those the cost of those pipelines? Everybody, all 37 towns, sit Camden and the suburbs benefit from the sewage treatment plant because all the sewage is being treated there. So of course that should be fairly shared. But the pipelines bringing the flow into the city don't benefit, they only benefit the suburbs, they don't benefit the city. So I calculated that roughly the treatment plant was about 60% of our costs and the, the intercept, the pipelines were 40%. So Cam, I convinced my the board that the Cam should only pay 60%, not a full 100%. You could argue it's actually a burden because you know who wants to have sewage dumped from one town into another town, but it's all underground and it's not like it's being dumped in the streets. But, but in the case of Camden, the more flow that comes from the suburbs, the higher probability that it would back up that it would back up into the streets of Camden. If that plant was only for Camden, it, it would be less likely to back up. Out of every $100 we spend, 60 goes to the plant, 40 goes to these suburban pipelines. Why should Camden pay for the pay for, for that $40 when they don't benefit from it? In Detroit, the sewage treatment plant for the whole region is located in Delray, right next to where Larry, Day, and Miss Daniqua live. The massive, destructive floods that wreaked havoc across large parts of southwest Detroit in 2021, which we talked about in episode two, happened because of the combined sewer system and were a direct result of the plant being located there. But in Detroit, it's the city residents who pay 83% of the costs of the pipelines that carry sewage from the suburbs to the city. When I told that to Andy, he was shocked. Especially if you, if you describe the, the, the equity, equity part of it, like, geez, yeah. the city of Detroit is probably, looks like they're paying for things that they don't even benefit from. How fair is that? A poor community is paying for some of the benefits of a richer community. In episode one, we talked about the vulnerable position the city was in when Gliwa was created and how it was the realization of years of desire for suburbs to take more control over the regional water system. It's important to remember the role of suburban power in creating the agreement in the first place and in terms of thinking about what it would take to renegotiate it today. For Andy, getting the host community benefits in place meant resistance from the suburbs. And calming that resistance meant concessions. I also really had to show that, it would, that we, could, we could afford to do it. 
that we could afford to, to lower the rate for Camden residents by 40% and not raise the rates for the suburbs. And to do that is because we had really been very aggressive about trying to be more cost efficient so that we could absorb, lower our costs so that we could use less revenue. Because of the same mindset, Gliwa is heavily underinvesting in Detroit, mainly because of suburban resistance. Only 0.5% of its budget goes towards water affordability or water relief. And as we talked about in episode three, the Lifeline plan has only a fraction of the funding that it needs to meet the great need in the community. Only enough to support one quarter of the low-income households currently at risk of being shut off. This lack of money can't be separated from suburban disinvestment. But when it comes time for us in the suburbs to reinvest, we balk once our own wallets are at stake. Disinvestment is not just local, though. There's tremendous need and opportunity to shift things at the state and federal level. At the state level, Flint has gotten the furthest in terms of justice. After a few years of lawsuits, residents recently won $641 million in total compensation. All children, people with documented health effects, and people responsible for paying water bills were eligible for money. And in some ways, this is a pretty huge win. 50,000 people, or half the population of Flint, were able to get payouts through the settlement. However, the settlement carries a lot of issues. The community had no direct control over the settlement fund, and in addition, the state paid the settlement over 30 years despite having the money to pay it up front, which means that private creditors are going to get $400 million in interest off the settlement, which effectively means that only 60% of the dollars are going to be going to Flint residents. The settlement also caps the amount adults can receive at $1,000, which is barely more than an average year of water bills at the height of the crisis. For Mama Monica, this was a bigger indictment of Governor Whitmer and the state government's attitude towards justice. Symbolic, but not systemic. She did not show up in real solidarity with the people of Flint. Mm -hmm. They got a historic payout on the legislation, but they get no money. Mm -hmm. So the average Flintstone, if those that do get some money, it's about $1,200. Mm -hmm. Please believe me, they got more than $1,200 in damage. They have more than $1,200 in buying bottled water. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what she knows is that water activists knows that they got a foul deal, and she's preparing herself for major pushback. Mm -hmm. And she's going to get it, mm -hmm. but she better be prepared for it. Mama Monica wasn't alone. Local news was mostly pretty critical of the settlement, with one article calling it too small, incohesive, and unjust. And while many residents quoted, recognize that it was a step, the prevailing emotion was that the settlement feels like, and I quote, a band-aid on a bullet wound. The biggest issue with individual payments as a form of community justice is that they fail to address the root causes of crisis. As an analysis of the settlement by the accounting justice firm Activest put it, in Flint, their budget numbers are all upside down. They're in a very precarious position with not enough revenue, a huge debt overhang, a huge pension overhang, and a dwindling population. That's not institutional justice. Who's making the city whole? Think about the perspectives we heard in the first part of this episode and the common desires for trust, affordability, reliability, and recognition of harm. Those are in many ways what institutional justice can look like. Building the structures 
to make realizing those things not a constant fight. For Anna Clark, a journalist and leading researcher on the structural causes of the Flint water crisis, the settlement misses two deeper forms of accountability, direct consequences for those responsible and the kind of bigger restructuring that would address the root causes of crisis. When I've talked to folks in Flint, like some of the things that they want, and like one some of the things that they've said that they would like to see is like, they want somebody to be literally held accountable. At this point, nobody has. And even the one person who was fired for her role in the water crisis had had uh, filed a case for wrongful termination and won it. Wow. So she just got like reimbursed all the stuff. So not one person has either been fired or been convicted of any crime, even in what is widely known as like a, a wrong, like a very serious wrong that has resulted in death, you know, for people in the community. I think that one of the number one reasons like folks in the community say like the Flint water crisis has been over is feeling like the sort of open wound of that, you know, I think people kind of see that as like a, a way of saying, actually, this wasn't that bad, you know, <laughs> like, you right. know, this isn't that serious. This is one of the ways that we as a society, like acknowledge wrong has been done and have some kind of accountability for people's actual choices that led to this. And it hasn't happened here. To the state's credit, there has been one more form of justice. They've prioritized funding for lead service line replacement heavily towards the cities most impacted by it, Flint and Benna Harbor. The political driver for this, though, has largely been suburban outrage because it's just about the only voice that's been able to get the state government's attention. In Flint, it wasn't the year of widespread reports of discolored, foul-smelling water, rashes, and sickness, or even the hundreds of community members bringing brown-colored water to community meetings with the EPA and State Department of Environmental Quality that led the government to take action. It was only once a Michigan State-affiliated doctor and Virginia Tech professor lent academic validity to years of community advocacy, and then only once that academic validity made headlines, and then only once those headlines reached places like Ann Arbor and Royal Oak, did the state and federal government finally give credence to the cause of the community. In Benna Harbor, community groups made pleas to the state government for three years, but it took a lawsuit to make headlines headlines to get suburban awareness, and suburban pressure to get state action. Even when we think about the COVID-19 era shut-off moratoriums, we have to remember that the community had been demanding that since 2014, and it only happened once the COVID-19 pandemic made shutoffs a risk to the health of people outside of Detroit. When it comes to water affordability, there hasn't been much suburban outrage, or even suburban talk. And when it comes to state-level funding for the issue, it shows. For advocates like Mama Monica, it's become a major frustration with the state government and Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But where I think she's gonna really fail is that there's 25 million that she's allocated for water assistance. There's another 40 million she's looking at putting in the budget. But we know that if you've got 250 million in arrears, and we know that if Detroit alone has 85 million, mm. and then you start looking across the state where major concentrations of black and brown poor people live, it won't be a good look for those municipalities nor her if they start massively shutting water off. 
and 25 million, please believe, is not going to take care of the state of Michigan, mm -hmm. nor 65 with the 40 being added. Yeah. If Detroit alone needs 85 and statewide 285. Like we talked about in episode three, Lifeline currently only has $15 million in funding, less than 20% of Detroit's total water debt for low-income people, and enough to reach only a quarter of the families at risk of being shut off. Luckily, the state's got some money lying around. $9 billion of a budget surplus for the year, to be exact. We talked about how almost that exact amount of money, $8.6 billion, were diverted by the state from statutory revenue sharing that was supposed to go to cities over the last 20 years to balance its budget. And because of the specific programs in revenue sharing that the state cut, most of those cuts fell the hardest on big, disinvested cities and their infrastructure. It's time to reinvest this diverted money towards our disinvested cities. The state should consider using a portion of the sales tax meant to fund these revenue-sharing payments to cities under Public Act 532 of 1998 to be specifically dedicated to city funding for water affordability programs and water infrastructure upgrades. This could take the form of a statewide water affordability initiative similar to the recent investments in lead service line replacement there's another direct action the state can take. In the aftermath of Detroit, Flint, and Benah Harbor's water crises, the harms of emergency management on access to clean and affordable water are clear. Emergency managers left these cities with disproportionate burdens when it came to providing clean, affordable water for their residents. The state has even previously recognized these harms by prioritizing lead line replacement funding in Flint and Benah Harbor before other cities. And we need similar state action around water affordability. Emergency managers instigated rate hikes to fill budget holes. For example, Flint's water during the crisis was the most expensive in the nation. They created additional cost burdens, and they ramped up shutoff enforcement. The state must recognize these harms by prioritizing funding to formerly emergency managed cities. But without pressure from the suburbs, where a large swath of swing voters and those with the loudest political voices live, that's never going to happen. And the thing is, water affordability is far from a Detroit issue. Across the state and the nation, water rates have been increasing far faster than inflation. In an average Michigan suburb, water rates are over 1.5 times higher relative to inflation in 2018 than in 1980. Even in rural and suburban areas that haven't faced the same style of urban racialized disinvestment, affordability is a growing issue, and advocates in all of these areas know it. Here's Victoria, the policy analyst we spoke with earlier. I'm curious about like that urban-rural kind of solidarity almost. Like, what is what does building that look like? Finding commonalities, finding similarities, rather than focusing on the differences. So, I mean, everywhere we can, you know, we lift PFAS and, and contamination issues. They raise affordability issues as it, you know, contamination affects their rates as well. So, you know, it's just, it's just sharing that, having that shared understanding that, you know, understanding that it's connected, that it, that it affects their, their rates as well. And their, that their water is also unaffordable, which is possibly due to, you know, different details, different specifics. In other words, there's a lot of solidarity already being built here, both because of issues with different specifics like Victoria talked about and a major shared issue, 
every community in the U.S. has experienced extreme disinvestment at the federal level when it comes to water. In the 1970s, federal funding accounted for a little more than 30% of what we spent on water infrastructure. Now, federal funding accounts for only 4%. For many water activists like Mama Monica, it's a chance to build solidarity. What do you think is going to take for the state government, the feds, the city to be put in, putting money into this issue like they should be? We've been meeting with the AWWA. The American Water Works Association, the largest nationwide organization of utilities. They've talked really transparently, I think, with us about the fact that they need something to advance water affordability. They don't do a good job of legislating nor communicating with community members. What we've said to them is that we'd love to be their partner on advancing water affordability, where we can have some common talking part points are around things like the legacy of divestment from water. I think if we're all talking out of that hymn book, that's a truth. That's a reality. That means that I'm not blaming you, you, or you. I'm saying that we all must share that this is the historical relevance of how we got here, and now how do we deal with moving us forward. That to me seems fair to everybody. So that means the water department, I'm not dogging them. That means that I don't have to dog out the state government. And it also means that even the feds, I don't have to dog them. I can just say, you need to make an adjustment here. That you over-adjusted and you've got to, you know, correct this. So being able to show that the last 50 years of divestment from about 67 to 69% down to 7 to 9, that that, that budgetary gaping hole got shifted to the state. The state shifted it to the individual municipalities, which then shifted it to the individual ratepayer. We know that those shifts and burdens have not kept pace with wages. Being able to show a, a, a timeline of wage growth in the country and then water cost in the country. Just those two visuals side by side, I think, could be helpful in helping us all use that one talking point that creates a level playing field. And while some reinvestment has happened through the recent infrastructure bills, there's still a lot more that can be done. Beyond federal funding, working to build this solidarity requires recognizing that this isn't just about individual bad actors. As Michael sees it, it's about systems that don't prioritize basic human rights like water access. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that strikes me to be candid is, is how, how, uh... How can we do this to certain communities? You know, like how can we just destroy black, you know, black Wall Street? How can we put highways and train tracks through communities, knowing we're going to destroy these communities? How can we put toxic waste sites beside these communities? I mean, the level of harm we have done to communities based on race, and you can say on gender and other other things, is is for me, it's like, how can we treat people this way? Like it's like, wow, right? And I, and I know it's not, not a, you know, it's not necessarily individual bad people. It's the way in which capitalism works. It's, it's to some extent. So how do we, how do we unravel that and, and address, and address that? You know, when you've got folks like Brooke Patterson, who says, you know, I'm going to tell you what, what we're going to do to Detroit. We're going to roll out the corn and the blankets and we're going to fence it around it. We're going to make a reservation out of it. I mean, that's what they wanted to do to the city. Right. Right. You know, I think reparations would be easier in, in a place not like Detroit. You know, I think, you know, maybe in, in Valero or maybe in, in, in Berkeley are the places where 
the work that needs to get done to recognize people's privilege is a lot less. You think about, you know, you think about Michigan and, and you think about, you know, like places like Oakland County and, and, and you know, like where where do you go in those communities to kind of go, okay, let's have a conversation about 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 reparations. For many people who didn't grow up here, like Michael, it's easy to write off the Detroit suburbs as a broad swath of silent white ignorance. I grew up here with brown skin, and that's far from the whole story. The communities we come from are full of compassionate, kind, honest people. Throughout this podcast, we've talked about the ways that policy has created a city-suburban divide, perhaps nowhere as firmly as in southeast Michigan, and pitted one against the other. What does it take to start unlearning that mindset? What does it take to have the conversation of what we, in the suburbs, owe the city of Detroit? And more importantly, how can we use the political power we have in the suburbs to make positive change on this issue? There's a few things we can do, right here and right now. As you've heard throughout this podcast, the political power of the suburbs has been a major reason for structural inequality and lack of action. But what this also means is that our voices are powerful ones when it comes to moving powerful entities towards action. One of the major obstacles to a larger commitment from the state government is our state legislators, our state representatives and senators, even ones who are in theory supportive of water affordability. The truth is, Legislation is rarely a priority without lots of constituents visibly pushing their state legislators. And right now, very little of that pressure is directed at representatives from the suburbs. On top of that, activists have shared with me that at the state level, suburban utilities, ones who buy water wholesale from Gliwa and sell it to their town, often stand in opposition to affordability measures at the state level. Many of them don't understand a lot of the structural causes of unaffordability we've talked about in this podcast, and they see affordability policies as a handout. So we're going to reach those two groups, directly, loudly, and clearly. In the episode notes and on the website, there's a tool marked Calling and Emailing Utility Leaders and State Legislators. Click it, and it will give you call and email scripts to reach your legislators and utility leaders. If you don't live in the region or in the state, don't worry. We'll mark the most powerful ones for you to call as an ally. On top of that, the conversation around water affordability can't continue to stay inside the city limits. We need to be bringing this discussion to our homes to make change. One good place to start doing that is a town hall at the Redford Public Library, hosted by We the People of Detroit on June 12th from 4 to 6 p.m. We'll post more information about that to the action steps part of this episode description and to our website, but come to hear more about people's experiences and find ways to get involved. And last but not least, it's important that for those of us with the means, we put our money where our mouths are. 
There are several organizations doing on-the-ground work to help fight for affordability and provide relief for households that have been shut off. You've heard from Leaders for Two, We the People of Detroit and the People's Water Board, in this podcast. You can donate to them and find ways to get involved in their work at wethepeopleofdetroit.org and peopleswaterboard.org. If you're looking to get more involved, the People's Water Board holds open meetings on the second Tuesday of every month. You can find the Zoom link on their website. As we pick up the pieces and find a way forward, it's important to remember the lessons of the last two years. A large portion of Anna Clark's book, The Poison City, focuses on what it means to dream about water in Flint moving forward. As the state, the feds, the city, and the affected communities pick up the pieces and find a way forward, I asked Anna what it meant to dream on a structural level. And one thing I thought about was like COVID and, you know, like the earliest shutdowns and stuff, like the, the only things that like, like there was sudden, suddenly all these things that were seemingly impossible suddenly became possible, right? Like no more water shutoffs, reconnections for people of water that of people who had had their water shut off for like ages, you know, all these things that people like Monica literally had been asking for for a long time where like people are like, oh, but we can't do that. That's impossible. And then they did it, you know, in the face of a public health crisis. And I think that kind of changes the conversation going forward now. If Flint wasn't enough, Detroit wasn't enough, like there's, there's, we also have this precedent now of like, what if, what if we just don't do water shutoffs anymore? What if water is free? <laughs> what if it's like subsidized as a, as, as this like as a public good to, to the point that citizens don't have to like bear the weight of this? Equitable change is possible. And suburban solidarity, regional restructuring, and additional state and federal level support are integral to that change. But it's important to remember that our solidarity only goes so far. Here's Valerie Jean Blakey of the People's Water Board. What do you wish the city understood that they don't right now? Legacy, legacy of a strong, prominently black, city. I wish that they understood beauty in the neighborhoods. I wish that they understood that there was more than uh, what downtown looks like, that the people in the neighborhoods, I wish they, they cherish the people in the neighborhoods the way that I do. Those are, I mean, those are wishes, though, and, and we don't get where we want to go. <laughs> like, on wishes, we have to actually build that, and that's really a conversation happening now. But, like, what does that look like to... Um, to have thriving communities, because obviously we're not gonna get it from them. It's something that we have to do for ourselves. That building is happening every day in these communities. But without the suburbs relinquishing our resources and our power, it can never be fully realized. For those of us who are outsiders to the affected communities, whether we live in the Detroit suburbs, somewhere else in Michigan, or anywhere in the country, Our goal is to fight the structures that hold the affected communities back from building their vision. Because these are communities full of love, strength, family, beauty, and courage that have been held back from their full potential because of actions that benefited people like us. I gave you your action steps already. So let's get to work. 
I have so many people to thank for making this series possible. First and foremost, a huge thank you to everyone who I interviewed and who helped me better understand the issue. That's Valerie Jean Blakey of the People's Water Board, Monica Lewis-Patrick, Victoria Long, and Cecily McClellan of We the People of Detroit, James Phillips of the Southwest Detroit Community Justice Center, Raquel Garcia of Southwest Detroit Environmental Vision, Chizu Omori, Daniqua Robinson, Barbara Jones, Dale Grays, Larry Smith, Michael Mascarenas, Andy Cricken, Pamela Beltran, and Anna Clark. A huge thank you to my advisors, David Palumbo-Lu, Sybil Diver, Khalid Osman, Annie Bushnell, and Pablo De La Porte for their support and the ways they pushed me throughout this process. Also, a huge thank you to Stanford's Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity Department and to the U.S. Water Alliance for supporting the research that informed this work. Although the views expressed in this podcast are my own and don't represent those of either organization. Thank you to Maria Ridgway, Allison Day, and Namunzel Batulga for their help researching state revenue sharing and the current situation around state water affordability funding. And of course, a huge thank you to my partner, Nancy Chang, to all my friends and mentors, and to my family for all the love, support, for pushing me to make this, and for picking me up along the way. I seriously couldn't have done it without you all. And an extra thank you to Nancy for making me a logo and giving me some much-needed last-minute motivation. If you're interested in learning more about the research that went into this podcast, or in seeing where the songs and news clips came from, you can check out the episode notes linked to in the description. That's also where you can find the action steps. All right, that's it. Peace.